0: Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Light Through, episode 222, Page to Screen, Dune Foundation, The Man in the High Castle, and the End of Eternity. Well, just yesterday, I gave a talk via Zoom at a great conference in Krakow, Poland, the overall conference was called Philosophy Con, and I was asked to talk about what happens and how the public perceives and appreciates science fiction classics. That is, they became classics because in their written form, they were read and appreciated and loved by millions of people. What happens when either movies or television series are made of them? So, the talk is about 30 minutes long. I'll be introduced by Michael Taddeus Norita. I probably have pronounced his name wrong, but I hope it's close. And then you'll hear some questions and answers at the very end. So, without further ado, here is my talk.
1: The Light on Light through podcast. Good morning, everyone. We are very pleased to welcome a very special guest today with us. We have Paul Levson, who is an author, uh, creator of songs, as I have read online. I don't know how much true is that.
0: <laughs> it's completely true.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll
0: sing a song for you, George. Okay,
1: <laughs> I, would, I would love to <laughs> listen to some of your uh, songs. And also, Paul Loveson is a professor uh, of communication and media studies. And uh, today, uh, he will be uh, making a presentation which is titled Dune on page versus screen. And uh, now... Uh, It's all up to you, sir. Um, Please uh, begin.
0: Talking about films and talking about science fiction novels, if anything, is probably more like music than studying Immanuel Kant or a traditional philosopher. Uh, And the last point I'll make about that before I start with my little lecture is one of the Best and most significant things that I've ever seen in my life is Peter Jackson's three part documentary, The Beatles Get Back, which I highly recommend. And uh, it it, it almost looks like you go into a time machine and you're back in 1969. That's how good the sound quality and the quality of the visuals are in in that uh, documentary. But let's Talk about Dune. As I'm sure everyone watching this and listening to this knows, a uh, an adaptation of Dune just came out uh, about a month or two ago. This is the second time that someone has tried to take the the novel and, in a sense, the overall Dune series, and and put it on a screen. The first time was back in the 1980s. This was a David Lynch production, the 1980s version, it's generally agreed that the 2021 version is much, much better than the David Lynch version, which is saying a lot because David Lynch uh, has had a wonderful career as a filmmaker, uh, doing all kinds of uh, extremely important things uh, like Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. So, uh, you know, there were high hopes for his uh, movie back in the uh, 1980s. And by and large, however, most people feel he did not do that good a a job. And I'll try to explain in a few minutes why I think that was not the case. Uh, But the first point I want to make when talking about Dune, both the 2021 movie and the original novel and the series, is a human psychological trait that I identified and came across years ago. I, I call it the first love syndrome. And what that's a nice fancy phrase, right? What it means is I came to realize that often when people talk about novels and their adaptations into movies and then more recently television series, The most important thing in terms of what they most like is what they first experienced. And we tend to think that, oh, the novel is always better than the adaptation, but that's usually because for most people, we already read the novel before we saw the adaptation. And so what happens when you read a novel, as we well know, psychologically, you you make a movie of it in your mind. You know, you've heard the expression theater of the mind. The act of reading a work of fiction is to put in motion a theatrical presentation in your mind. And you know what works best for you, right? It's your mind. Everyone has a different mind. And so if you read a novel and you say, oh, my God, I just love this novel. I'm inhabiting the novel. The novel is inside me. What that really means is uh, you you have created a a motion picture in your head that you feel really works for you. So if you think about that, you can realize how difficult it is when someone else makes a motion picture of that. And furthermore, it's not even that person's mind. It's the director and filmmakers uh, attempt to put what's in his or her mind out there on the screen, and it's bound to be a disappointment to you. The first time I realized that, I was at a science fiction convention, and we were talking about Star Trek, and we were talking about some of the television and movie adaptations of Star Trek, and someone in the audience, a young man, raised his hand and said, My favorite Star Trek is Star Trek, the motion picture. I really love that. Better than the television series, better than any series. And at first I was stunned. I mean, I thought maybe I didn't hear this guy correctly. I said, you're telling me you loved Star Trek, the motion picture. Came out in the early 1980s better than Star Trek, the original series, better than Kirk and Spock, better than Star Trek, the next generation, Picard and Data. And, and the guy said, yeah, that's, that's what I'm telling you. And I said, so just to satisfy my interest, which of those two things, uh, you know, of all the Star Trek series and did you see first? And he said, well, it was the movie. You know, I hadn't seen any of the other television series. I went to see the movie, and then when I watched the series, it just didn't seem as exciting to me as the movie. Now, I think Star Trek, the motion picture, the first Star Trek movie is okay, but I think it's generally and correctly recognized as not a very good motion picture. It was all right, not the greatest. Certainly, it doesn't hold a candle to Star Trek, the original series, or Star Trek, the next generation. Uh, none of those uh, things, in fact, uh, hold a, a candle to the uh, original series. Um, and um, that's what gave me the idea and the realization that it's not just saying which is aesthetically better, which works better. It has to do with what you first experienced. And after that, I noticed, you know, when people were saying, well, which did you like better, Lord of the Rings, or back to Peter Jackson, uh, his Lord of the Rings trilogy. People who read Tolkien's novels always thought, well, Peter Jackson's works were good. They were good, but they were not great. And when it was the other way around, when people had seen the movies first and then went to read the novels. They thought the novels were excellent, but just didn't stand up to the uh, movies and what they saw in the movies. So I think we have to consider that first luck principle whenever we are trying to evaluate which is better, which does more or less. Because of that, I also noticed a very interesting thing, and this was really more recent and that is that the adaptations which tended to get the most immediate love and adulation were those that made major major changes from the original so major that someone who loved the original could take the adaptation as something new and like and come to love it on its own terms. And so the question is, well, how much of a change do you have to make? Well, in my view, one of the best adaptations uh, is the Amazon Prime television series, The Man in the High Castle, which, of course, is an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's award-winning Novel, The Man in the High Castle, in my view, one of the best novels I've ever read. By the way, right up there with Dune and Foundation, I I would highly recommend The Man in the High Castle. One of the reasons why I thought that was so successful is because the Amazon Prime video presentation introduced a character john smith who wasn't even in the original novel and not only that they got a brand actor to play that part rufus sewell and in fact i interviewed rufus sewell i was teaching a class from page to screen similar to what i'm talking to you about right now this past summer and i was able to get rufus sewell uh through zoom Uh, to come by my class, and we had a 90-minute interview, so you can just search for this on YouTube. And uh, Sewell explains how when he sat down with Frank Spotnitz, who was the person who put the series together, they discussed how this new character would change the very nature of uh, Philip K. Dick's book while attempting to be true uh, to it. And I think it succeeded marvelously. Around the same time as Dune, the first part of the two-part movie, debuted, uh, and this is just in the last couple of months, another incredibly path-breaking science fiction series came to the screen. And as a matter of fact, in my view, I would say that the Dune series is the second best Science fiction series, the book series that I've ever read. So that's high praise. I've probably read I, I don't know, thousands of different stories. And uh, I think that the I think that the Dune universe is a marvelous, brilliant, multifaceted, deeply layered universe with all kinds of different themes. You know, ranging from faster-than-light travel by folding space to uh, you know the Bene Gesserit or Gesserit—I don't know to this day how to pronounce that, but uh and and uh, you know the, the the power of of th- this group of women who, in many ways, control the destiny of of many of the people in that story. So I think that Dune is in a class by itself but i consider it the second best series because you might ask what do i think was the first best series that would be isaac Asimov's foundation series and the foundation trilogy for a variety of reasons and you know since this isn't about foundation i'm not going to talk too too much about foundation but uh, I, I will say that for those of you who are interested in philosophy uh, the Foundation Trilogy is uh, the world's best science fiction for considering a profound philosophic issue, which is, if you could have knowledge of the future, if you, in effect, uh, accepted the philosophy of uh De Lamartine, the French philosopher who said, You know, the whole universe is like a clockwork organization. And if you could understand how it's ticking, you could predict where it's going to be a year from now, a, a decade from now, a millennium from now. That is a point of view that many scientists actually have. And in the Foundation trilogy, Isaac Asimov starts the trilogy. By positing that here is this brain thinker, Harry Selden, who is able to figure out how th- that universe is working, his so-called psychohistory, and predict where things are going. And in one of the most exciting parts of uh, the Foundation Trilogy in the story called The General, here the old empire still is powerful, has an incredibly powerful general attacks the foundation but the foundation wins because it's in the right place at the right time but not to give too much away if you haven't read the foundation right after the general comes another character called the mule who's a mutation not predictable therefore by harry selden's history and that changes things completely so In terms of this philosophic question, if you have knowledge, what can you understand and what will you be unable to understand? There's no better story than the Foundation trilogy and the Foundation series. And by a stroke of good fortune, these two best, first best and second best, they're... Visual presentations debuted at almost precisely the same time, just a couple of months ago. I mean, that's really amazing. You know, there was no coordination between the two productions. It just happened that way. This, by the way, not to get too deeply into philosophy, but I'll just throw in here. This is another expression of what Hegel referred to as the spirit of an age. And as you may know, Hegel in his work said, there are just times in history when when certain forces come together and make a lot of things happen that are related to each other. So if you're studying the history of popular culture and art, for example, you notice that uh, in the late 1800s, there was Impressionism. What was Impressionism? It was a kind of art. It was a kind of poetry. It was a kind of music. So you have Monet and Manet, that's art. Uh, you, you have Impressionistic uh, poets uh, and uh, you, you have Impressionistic music. Claude Debussy in his Afternoon of the fawn a beautiful impressionistic piece. So you have three different kinds of art, and they're all talking to us as human beings from a similar perspective through different media. And I think it's we're seeing a spirit of an age in terms of great science fiction coming to the screen. Now, I already mentioned The Man in the High Castle, so that wasn't precisely at the same time as Dune... And uh, and foundation, but uh, it, you know it's certainly part of our time. Now let, let's get back, though, more specifically to Dune uh, for a few minutes. The, the uh, and 1980s film uh, versus the you know, movie, obviously. One of the problems bringing science fiction to the screen, and one of the problems that Dune specifically entailed—that is, the bringing of Dune to the screen—is there is such a grandeur in the Dune story. You know, just think of like one scene. You know, the the wind sand-swept sand swept terrain of Dune—the immensity of that you know, and this is like to cite another philosopher, Blaise Pascal, the, you know, when the Pascal mused about the, the human being, when we contemplate the grandeur of the cosmos, we're infinitesimal compared to that grandeur. Well, when we do, and you look at those sand swept environments, not to mention the sandworm and all those things. There's an enormity there that you get when you're reading the words, but that's not easy to portray on the screen. And that's one of the reasons why I think the David Lynch movie, he gave it a good try, but they just didn't have the technology then to do it but the 2021 movie did and does and so one of the reasons why I think that's such a thrilling movie to see and so satisfying is it that movie was up to the task of meeting the theater of the mind that all readers of Dune had and It's interesting that, and here, Dune becomes exceptional, different from The Man in the High Castle and different from Foundation because it was so true to the original novel. And let me just fill in a detail there. I mentioned that The Man in the High Castle introduced the character of John Smith. Well, The foundation, first season at least, they introduced something very new to Isaac Asimov's foundation stories as well. In Isaac Asimov's foundation stories, there was an emperor by the name of Cleon. One guy, an emperor. He set a lot of things in motion. But in the David Goyer television series, that one emperor becomes a triumvirate of clones. Uh, Brother Dawn, Brother Day, and Brother Dusk. If you haven't seen that, you don't know what I'm talking about. I won't give too much away in case you haven't seen it. I highly recommend it. But again, I think that foundation succeeded. And uh, it's just the first of, I think there are going to be eight seasons of it, 10 episodes each. It it, it broke the hold of the first love syndrome by putting something completely not in Isaac Asimov's story in that Dune, in, in that foundation trilogy, just as the man in the high castle did that with uh, John Smith. Doom courageously didn't do that. They stuck very, very carefully to the original. So for people who, and anyone who's read the novel, uh, they're waiting to see these things happen. And the way they happened was very, very satisfying and gratifying in the Dune uh, movie. Uh, I'll just mention one more uh, point and then, uh, you know, I could talk about this for hours, but I'd be uh, happy uh, to answer any questions about this. Uh, I I just came across something very, very recently. And I thought of you, that is this conference, when I saw this, and you'll know why in in a minute, uh, The Foundation trilogy and the Foundation series was written by Isaac Asimov, who, in my view, because I put the Foundation series in first place, uh, is the greatest science fiction writer in history. Better than H.G. Wells, better than Jules Verne, better than Philip K. Dick, better than Frank Herbert, even though those people are all superb. But in addition to the Foundation Trilogy, Isaac Asimov also happened to write my favorite time travel novel, The End of Eternity. And I have to tell you, I'm the kind of person when I really love something. uh, I try, if possible, to also create my own version of it. So I haven't yet written a Foundation Trilogy or anything like Dune. But I have written a few time travel novels, The Plot to Save Socrates, uh, and there are two sequels to that, Unburning, Alexandria, and Chronica. And uh, every time I write anything with time travel, there's a part of my brain that is replaying the end of eternity. That's how important that novel was to me. It was written in 1955, I read it when I was just an infant in 1959. I was a little older than an infant, but I was just really a kid. And I remember it blew my mind. I I just loved it. Anyway, I discovered just recently that there was a Soviet adaptation of The End of Eternity made in 1987. And the first thing I thought when I saw something about that is, you know, I said, oh, this can't be any good. Are you kidding? You know? But nonetheless, you you have to, you know, and to get back to philosophy, you know, as Kant said, Immanuel Kant, there are two parts to understanding. There's what your cognitive structures are, what you have in your head already, but then there's the confrontation of that with real experience. That's where knowledge comes from. So I, I have this idea that, hey, this is probably a ridiculous travesty of a movie. But I just saw the movie. It's in two parts. It's two hours long. It's on YouTube. So I don't know if YouTube is available in in Poland. It's in Russian. I don't uh, speak Russian. (laughs) Uh, Or certainly I don't read Russian. But they're pretty good English subtitles. And here's the point I'm making. Way back in 1987, this movie was made. And you know what? It is a surprisingly good movie. I didn't expect it to be good, and it did the same thing that the Dune movie did in 2021 that the Foundation series and the Man in the High Castle did not do. It told that story, the end of eternity, that marvelous time travel story, completely by expressing the original. It didn't introduce new characters. Didn't go in different directions, so I have to give that Soviet filmmaker credit. The, even the acting was pretty good, by the way. So um, I'm just gonna I'm just throwing that in there because I think that that movie, The End of Eternity, the Soviet adaptation, Isaac Asimov, by the way, was born in Russia. Uh, I think back in 1920. Uh, so um, you know it makes sense that there would be an affinity. Any work of Isaac Asimov and um any anything having to do with russia but they got it they got it very well i'm just like one point in case any of you read the end of eternity and know the story i won't give anything away but one of the prime characters in that uh novel is the all when council a-l-l-w-h-e-n all when and uh they had that council in the movie, and I realized that the Soviets knew how to portray that because that council looked like a Politburo in the movie. The All Went Council in that time travel movie felt very much like the Soviet Politburo, or what I know about it. I never witnessed it personally. If I ever got to the Soviet Union back in the old days, I probably would not have gotten out of there they probably would have thrown me in some gulag uh, but the point is uh, I I really give that movie uh, credit and I highly recommend it to all of you so thank you very much and uh, I look forward to your questions and happy to answer any of them
1: thank you sir for this marvelous uh, production. Uh, we have a couple of questions for you. Uh, the first one is about the new series uh, Foundation. And because the cast in the series was made uh, um, much more uh, multicultural and uh, also uh, feminine figures appeared, because Asimov, who was uh, writing in um, the specific age of uh, Russia history, uh, he was mostly uh, just making it about this uh, social, um, ethnical uh, background. And how do you think this transposition uh, made uh, the great success of this interpretation possible?
0: I very much like that uh transition or transformation, and some of it was actually very clever as well. So the, in the original, uh, the, the first Foundation novel, there was a character, Gal Dornick, who in the novel actually is a pretty minor character. He's like a boring mathematician. You, you don't really know much about him. He's, he's almost just, he he's what they call in writing an occasion for an info dump meaning he just dumps information out there so so we get it. In the Apple TV Plus rendition of that same story and that same character, they take the name Gal, which is spelled by Asimov G-A-A-L, and they pronounce it Gal, which is fine with me, and they make it a woman character. Uh, and... Uh, they do the same thing with Salvar Hardin, who was a man in the uh, uh, Foundation stories. Uh, and I think, and, and they do the same, and probably most significantly, with uh, the robot character. Who, by the way, Asimov liked blending his stories together. So in, I, in Asimov's robot stories, even independent of the Foundation, there was a robot by the name of R. Daniel Olivaq. You can look up the spelling of that. Asimov took uh, that character and put him into the foundation stories later on in the 1980s and made the character Demerzel, which, you know, is a a genderless name. So in the um, novel, and again, this came out in the 1980s, it was one of the prequels, Demersel is a masculine robot. I mean, deep down, he's neither male nor female. But you know, the the flesh that he has on, or whatever it is, makes him look like a man. Well, in in the Foundation television series, the uh, character is a, a woman, and and very very well played. So I, I like those um, those changes. I just want to say one thing though. In Isaac Asimov's defense, he's often criticized as not giving women much of a role. But in the Foundation trilogy, there are a few women characters. Beta Darrell, for example, I mean, she saves the Foundation. So again, I don't want to give too much away. She is a major character. Her granddaughter, Arkady Darrell, plays a major role as well. And in the robot stories, uh, the, the main intellect, the human being who understands the robots is Susan Calvin. She's obviously a woman too. So, in all fairness, Thasmo, yeah, he was a product of his times. He tended to write male characters more than female characters, but he uh, did have um, uh, some female characters. By the way, I should mention I'm not like Isaac Asimov when it comes to female characters. The heroine of my the plot to save Socrates on burning Alexandria and Chronicle trilogy. Is Sierra Waters, who is a graduate student, a young woman in New York in the 2040s. So um, I like writing women characters.
1: So uh, you have said about uh, Hegel's uh, uh, spirit of history. And uh, I have a question about uh, Hegel's dialectic which makes its way back to the foundation. Because as you said, uh, Harris Seldon's uh, psych- psychic history was a brilliant deterministic way of knowing exactly what will happen in the future. But there was a mutation which happened to uh, make the previous predictions uh, obsolete. And one way of understanding uh, Hegel's dialectic is that we have a thesis, uh, an antithesis, and they together make the synthesis. So uh, all movies are great. Uh, Titanic is not a very good movie. So most movies are great, but not Titanic. And the other way of understanding Hegel's uh, dialectic is the way that was introduced mainly by Slavoj Žižek and he interprets uh, this uh, philosophy as a dualistic philosophy of synthesis and antithesis, meaning that they cannot exist without one another. So to project it onto the idea of psychohistory, history which was presented in uh, Foundation um, the, um, only because there was a mutation which made the predictions obsolete, the prediction was able to, to be made in the first place. And how do, what do you think about this idea? That it, it was the only way that it could happen.
0: A few. I have a few responses to that question. In the first place, I think Hegel's spirit of an age can be understood without any reference to the dialectic synthesis, antithesis. You know, uh, you know, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and then the synthesis generates new antithesis, etc. You you don't need that uh, as the explanation for why it is that in certain times in history, everything seems to come together in a cultural sense. And in fact, I don't know what the reason for that is. I I think it's just enough to recognize it, meaning that popular culture is not just the haphazard thing that sometimes we think it is. It's not just something that's the result of very rich people coming up with enough money to finally make a series or a movie. Those are all factors, but there is something deeper in the culture and deeper in human beings and in our expression of cultures, which leads to this spirit of an age. And so uh, that I think is an important thing to, to keep in mind. However, that said, I, I think yes in order for a thesis to be understood you have to have an anti-thesis or an antithesis because the, it's the antithesis which sheds light on the thesis and then makes it easier to understand and in fact helps the thesis evolve into into something new and and so, In foundation, the mule indeed is the antithesis of the thesis Harry Seldon's psychohistory. And however, and that's a very exciting thing dramatically and in the narration, but it did not destroy psychohistory. It educated psychohistory. And that's why Asimov brilliantly puts into the novel, well, there's a second foundation. And, it, and the second foundation, in effect, comes into its own, achieves a position of prominence, because it is the answer to the mule, not the original foundation. And, and that is a classic synthesis and a progression of knowledge and understanding. Or, in other words, psychohistory is not just Harry Seldon mapped out this future, And all you have to do is passively become aware of it, or maybe not even become aware of it. Everything is going to be okay as long as you follow the mathematical direction. That's what the original thesis was. But the antithesis of the Mule shows that in order for psychohistory to have lasting impact, it has to be living. It can't just be Harry Seldon's mathematical equations. And so that's what the second foundation is for, a a group of brilliant mathematicians who take Harry Seldon's equations and are constantly working them and figuring out where things are going to go. Uh, So I think in that sense, uh, the foundation story does indeed capture Hegel's dialectic. By the way, let me throw... One other thing in here, one of the things I hadn't mentioned is I've done a lot of work with Marshall McLuhan. And in fact, uh, my three nonfiction books that have been translated into Polish, uh, The Soft Edge, Cell Phone, and New New Media, all deal heavily with Marshall McLuhan's work. McLuhan attempted to expand the three-part dialectic into what he, McLuhan, called the TETRAD, T-E-T-R-A-D, a a four-part structure about the impact that technologies have on our lives. And he thought that was a better way, a a more accurate way of mapping out these changes. Uh, Even though I have been identified as a student and a proponent of McLuhan's work, I think the TETRAD is very valuable I think you can have both Hegel's dialectic and McLuhan's tetrad. You don't need both. It, I, you don't need to have one or the other. In other words, it's like the first foundation and the second foundation. You, you, you really need uh, the two of them. Let me also say, by the way, I'm going to put into the chat, uh, assuming that I, yeah, I think this uh, should do it. I just put a link in to a review I was thinking about that uh, Soviet movie, The End of Eternity, and I I wrote a review actually just last night. So you can read my review in that link, and that also has a link to the YouTube. Uh, two-hour presentation of that 1987 movie, The End of Eternity. It also has links to my interview with uh, Rufus Sewell, and it has links to a discussion I had with a group of uh, reviewers about Foundation. So you, you might find that of interest. Last but not least, let me also mention to anyone who's listening to this, uh, my Twitter handle is at Paul Lev. That's P-A-U-L-L-E-V, at Paul Lev. I'll type that in here just so everyone has it. And um, if anybody has any questions after all this is over, feel free to tweet the questions to me. I, I always answer questions and uh, I'll, I'd always be happy to hear from you. So thank you for uh, inviting me. I had a good time. I enjoyed uh, Harry Selden's lecture. Uh, even though we couldn't ask him any questions <laughs> and uh, this is a good conference
1: hey thank you greatly for your time and effort and uh, we are sorry for the inconveniences but most of all we are very happy that we have had you here with us the light on light through podcast
0: well i hope you enjoyed that talk about those great science fiction novels and series in the case of Foundation and Dune, making the transition from page to screen. I'll be back here soon, probably with a review of the next episode of Dexter, New Blood, and I'll have other reviews and interviews and who knows what else between now and the end of this year 2021 and some good things coming up in January 2022 as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and enjoy. Athens,
1: 2042 A.D.